Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back. We are in Matthew chapter 9 today, beginning at verse 1, and we're going to read through uh, the first 17 verses and then come back and look at them in closer detail. It's a familiar story that we encounter today, one that I'm sure you've heard many times before. Chapter 9 begins this way, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgiveness sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." As I said, this is a familiar story. Uh, The setting is that Jesus, we're told, has crossed over the lake, the Sea of Galilee. That's how it begins in getting into a boat. He crossed over and came to his own city. Uh, Jesus, of course, in the section that immediately precedes this, had been in the area of the Gadarenes. And that's where he had healed those two demon-possessed men. That was Gentile territory. It was an area known as the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten. It was a city of ten Gentile cities. It was a circuit. Uh, those of you who have been to Bet Shan when we've gone to the Holy Land, that great city that lies in ruins, uh, that is um, one of the cities of the Decapolis. So that was a Gentile city. Jesus probably at one point or another passed through that region when he was in Galilee. It was not uncommon. But now Jesus, having gone over to the region of the Gadareans, has crossed back across the Sea of Galilee, and we're told he has gone to his own city. Now, 
when we, ask, we have to ask the question, what is Jesus' own city? Jesus, of course, came from where? Nazareth. But that is not what Matthew describes as his own city. This event takes place in Capernaum. So what is Matthew telling us? Well, he's telling us that Jesus came from Nazareth. He was known as a Nazarene. But elsewhere in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus faced opposition in Nazareth. He went into the synagogue and he taught, and they didn't like what he had to teach. In fact, they became so angry with him, they took him out to the brow of a hill and they were ready to throw him off. They were ready to kill him. But we're told that Jesus passed through unharmed because his time had not yet come. So he had been rejected in Nazareth. Hence the words, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his own kin. We've all had that experience, I'm sure, at one point or another. Sometimes the easiest people to minister to are those who are not members of your own family. And sometimes the hardest people to minister to those or those who are members of your own family. Well, that was the case with Jesus. And so it appears that he had left Nazareth and he had settled down in Capernaum. Indeed, Peter and the others had moved to Capernaum. Peter had moved his family to Capernaum, probably to be close to Jesus, because this was a centrally located city in the area of Galilee. So that is the setting. And Jesus has come here. Uh, I put up there on the screen, desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, Jesus wanted to get the message out to as many people as possible, so he establishes his headquarters here in Capernaum. And it's while he's here, and he's already gained a reputation for healing in Capernaum. Of course, that's where Peter's mother-in-law had been healed. That's where Jesus had healed all those people that came out until the darkness came and then he had left. And so Jesus had been performing miracles here. And on this particular occasion, we're told that a man was brought to him lying on a bed. Now, it's always helpful to read not just one version of the story. I pointed out to you that Matthew is part of what are known as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is unique, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke come from a common source, and they have a lot of the same story. Sometimes the material is put in a slightly different order, but, but the, the synoptic gospels and basically their timeline are very similar. And so it's helpful to read not only Matthew's version of the story, but perhaps if Luke tells a parallel story or Mark tells a parallel story, we can learn a great deal from it. And it's from the parallel accounts that we learn about this man being lowered actually through a hole in the roof. You're familiar with that story, uh, that this man had some friends, all the people were crowded in to listen to Jesus' teaching. They knew that Jesus was a great miracle worker, and they wanted to get their friend in to see Jesus. There was no way of getting this man on this litter in through the crowds, and so what they do, they carry the man up on the roof. Now, these were flat roofs in Palestine. It's still in many portions of that world today. There are still flat roofs. And what they did is they removed the tiles, which I'm sure was something that the owner greatly appreciated. But they removed the tiles, and in their desperation, they lowered this man down in front of Jesus. Now, what I want you to notice is Jesus' response to this. Verse 2, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, not just that they brought the man, but that they brought the man under these unusual circumstances, they were so desperate to get this man before Jesus that they went to these extraordinary measures of climbing up on the roof, which must have been terrifying, incidentally, for the poor fellow. I mean, he, he was paralyzed. He couldn't move. 
And he's at the mercy of these four men, and they carry him up on the roof, which would have been a treacherous journey. They tear away the roof, and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them. He saw their faith. And what does he say? He says, take heart, my son. I'm sure those words alone filled the man with a certain degree of anxiety. What what does he mean, take heart? Is he going to do something for me? And that's when Jesus, without blinking an eye, responds, son, your sins are forgiven. The people could hardly believe what Jesus had said. They had seen Jesus heal. No doubt when Jesus said, take heart, that's what they expected him to do, is to heal this man. But that's not what Jesus did initially. Jesus looked at them, saw their faith, and said to the man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And immediately we're told that the Jewish religious leaders who had gathered there at the door, the scribes in particular, said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Who but God can forgive sins? See, that was the problem. It's fine for him to heal, but who is this man to presume that he can actually forgive sins? I said this is evidence that demands a verdict. I pointed out to you that Jesus performed miracles, but the miracles were never meant to be the focus of his ministry. You see this in the first chapter of Mark when he heals Peter's mother-in-law and all of those people show up at the door and they want to see Jesus and they want to be healed by Jesus and darkness comes and Jesus sends them all away and the next morning the people are all back at the door wanting to see Jesus, wanting to be touched, wanting to be restored and they go out to get Jesus and he's nowhere to be found and somebody gets the bright idea that he's out praying and you can just imagine Peter and the others going up there, finding Jesus, and they say, what are you doing? And Jesus said, well, I'm praying, what I normally do. And they said, well, this is no time for prayer. We've got to get on with the work of ministry, and the work of ministry is to heal people. And that's when Jesus said to them, that is right, let us get on with the work. Let us go to the other towns that I may preach there also, because that's why I came out. See, they were focused on the miracles, and the miracles were never meant to be the focus. The miracles were simply meant to be an authenticating sign. Incidentally, that is how John describes all of Jesus' miracles in his gospel. He doesn't describe them as miraculous, although they are. He doesn't describe them as supernatural, though they are. He describes them as signs. And a sign is something that points to something greater than itself, a reality bigger than itself. So Jesus didn't come to perform miracles. Jesus came and performed miracles in order to authenticate himself and his ministry. And what was his ministry? Well, it was preaching and teaching, but more than that, Jesus Christ came into the world, what? To save sinners. (laughs) That's why he came into the world. What is the central symbol of the Christian faith? What is it that the first thing you see, aside from the pulpit, When you walk into St. Philip's Church, what's the first thing you see? You see the cross. That's the emblem of the Christian faith. That's what adorns our steeple. That's what Jesus Christ came into the world to do. And the miracles were simply meant to authenticate the man, his message, and his ministry. They were never meant to be ends in and of themselves. And that's why when this man is lowered through the roof, Jesus turns to him and says, Your sins are forgiven. Now, I'm sure he appreciated that. 
But of course, that's not what he came for. He came for physical healing. But immediately, the scribes, the Jewish religious leaders, recognized what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to do something that only God could do. And they regarded it as blasphemy, and it was punishable in that day by death. Death by stoning. So if Jesus was going to make that kind of a claim, Jesus had to do something about it. I want you to notice that when it comes to Jesus Christ, there are two things that even secular sources acknowledge about him. We pointed this out some time ago when we first started looking at the miracles. We said that even the secular sources, people like Josephus, who was a Jew but not a Christian, even the secular sources, the Roman sources and the Jewish sources acknowledge about Jesus was that he was a worker of wonders. Now, nobody went so far as to investigate how he was doing these things. Some people actually said that he was performing black magic. But nobody denied the fact that Jesus was a great miracle worker and people were in awe by him. That's the first thing to note about him. The second thing was Jesus was revolutionary. Now, he was not a revolutionary in the sense that the people expected. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to be a revolutionary, one who would lead a revolt against the Roman authorities drive out these pagan polytheistic Romans and reestablish the Davidic dynasty, the glory days of David and Solomon. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus did come to be a revolutionary, but not that kind of a revolutionary. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why I think that those shouts of Hosanna in the highest on Palm Sunday over the short span of just about five or six days suddenly became shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Because when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on the back of a donkey, he was presenting himself clearly in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the Messiah. And furthermore, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. A very public miracle. So everybody said, well, my goodness, he's raised people from the dead. He's headed into Jerusalem. He's mounted on the foal of an ass, exactly what the Old Testament said. He's coming, and they were tearing down the palm branches from the trees. They were laying their cloaks in the road in front of him. They were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. But when they realized that the Messiah came not to be lifted up on a throne, but to be lifted up on a cross, then they turned against him. But of course, that is exactly why Jesus had come. That is what he'd come to do. He was a revolutionary, and he started a revolt the likes of which the world has never known before. But it was a revolution that was based on the words that we have before us today. The revolution took place because Jesus claimed to be the one who could forgive people their sins. That's why Jesus is a revolutionary figure, my friends. Nobody else in the world can forgive sins. Now, I can claim to. I can say to Bill Warlick, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Don't choke on your sandwiches. I say that to you. <laughs> I can say that, but it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to prove it. If I were to say, if I were to climb into the pulpit on Sunday and say to all of you, on my own authority, I say your sins are forgiven, you'd walk out of there saying, he's nuts. He's gone round the bend. We've been working him too hard or whatever it is, but, but, but my goodness, he's clearly gone out of his mind. And that's exactly what they're saying about Jesus. 
And so what did Jesus have to do? Jesus had to prove that that is what he'd come to do, and furthermore, that he had the authority to do it. And that is why he heals the man. The healing of the man is the evidence that Jesus came into the world to forgive sins, and what's more, he had the authority and the power to do it. This is an important element about the Christian faith, to realize that ours is a faith that is built upon evidence. I've said that over and over again. Ours is an historic faith. This is not credulity. This is not hope against hope. We believe in Christianity because it is based upon solid evidence. Now, I've said to you before, you're not going to get proof. But you don't get proof for anything in life. The only discipline where you get proof is mathematics. (laughs) For everything else, you get evidence. But you can get evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the only thing that's required in a court of law, isn't it? is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He provides them with powerful evidence that he can, in fact, forgive sins. The scribes grumbled, this man is blaspheming, verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Now, most of the time when Jesus performed a miracle, we're told the crowds were what? Amazed. This time, they're not merely amazed. They are afraid. Because Jesus had proven his authority and his power to forgive sins. And they glorified God. But look at what it says. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. They still didn't recognize who he was. There are a couple of important lessons that I think follow from this that I just want to highlight. The first, and this is made very clear by Jesus' words, is that the real problem, and we have many of them, but the real problem for the human race is sin. That's the real problem for the human race. As I said, when this man was lowered through the roof and Jesus said, take heart, he got excited because he thought Jesus was going to heal him of his problem. And as far as he was concerned, as far as friends were concerned, his problem was what? The fact that he was lame. Well, Jesus had come to heal him of his problem, but Jesus makes it very clear his problem is not that he's lame. The problem was that he had sin in his life. We need to understand that that is the real problem for the human race. And all other problems in one way or another stem from that. Now because this story of Jesus forgiving sins is tied to the fact that the man has a physical malady, it raises the question, is sickness linked to sin? Sometimes we ask that question. If I'm going through a difficult time or I'm afflicted with a terrible illness or I've been diagnosed with cancer, we sometimes wonder, is this God's means of punishing me? Well, the answer to that is, well, yes and no. Yes, sometimes sickness is linked to sin, but it's oftentimes not a divine affliction. Sometimes it's a self-infliction. If you abuse your body, for example, and do drugs, or you you smoke four packs a day, 
and, and you get diagnosed with lung cancer, that may be the result of your behavior, but that is not necessarily a divine affliction. That is the result, perhaps, of your own failure to care for your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So sometimes it is true, and sometimes we have to acknowledge the fact that, that the misdeeds of the parents can be visited upon the children. A mother, for example, who uses drugs or crack cocaine or injects herself with illegal drugs may find that when she has a child, the baby is also afflicted with an addiction. It's not the baby's fault, but it certainly is the fault of the mother as a consequence of that. So we have to say that sometimes, yes, illness, afflictions, whatever it may be, is genetic or it's passed on. It can be the result of sin from time to time. But that's not always the case. We have a great example of that, not here in Matthew, but in John's Gospel. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and turn to John, another very familiar story, but an important one, especially if you're going through a difficult time, if you're struggling with health issues and you want to know why this is happening to you. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, maybe God is punishing me or afflicting me or trying to get my attention. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to reach and to rouse a sleeping world. Well, perhaps... But that's not always the case. In John chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now, the key here is not that the man was just blind, but that he was blind from what? Birth. And his disciples asked him the logical question. And the question that most people in that day believed was answered in the affirmative. Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? The assumption was that he was blind because of sin. The question was, had he sinned or his parents that he was born this way? And look at how Jesus responds. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. When no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Salome, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back, what? Seeing. Now, Jesus makes it very clear there. This man was born blind. Why? Because he had sinned? No. Because his parents had sinned? No. So why was he born blind? so that Jesus might be glorified. Now, that's not generally the way we think, do we? Because we have a tendency to think that life is really all about us. But my friends, if that man had not been born blind and Jesus had not healed him, you and I could not be encouraged by the story of his life. So this was to show Jesus' glory and it was to be an encouragement to others. And this is not the only example of this that we find. Turn two pages in John's Gospel. It's about two pages in my Bible, two chapters at least, to John chapter 11. Very familiar story. I know you know this one. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 11, verse 1 begins, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. 
It is for the glory of God so that the man, Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two days longer. Now isn't that interesting, the way that John puts it? Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately rushed off to Bethany. The text says, when he heard it, he loved them, so he decided to stay where he was for two more days. Now, note that Jesus said this illness will not end in death. He loved them, but he stayed where he was for two more days. The story goes on to say, Jesus finally said, let's go. Our brother Lazarus needs us. He's fallen asleep. And the disciples turned to him, well, we know that he's been sick. If he's sick, sleep is what he needs. Let's just not worry about it. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. He's dead. Dead. I mean, Jesus appears to them to be talking in riddles. He said it's not going to end in death, but now he tells them he is dead. He loves them, but he stays where he was for two more days. And he does that all why? To show, he said, that the Son of Man may be glorified. So we have to acknowledge the fact that sometimes sin does cause illness, but oftentimes it doesn't. Sometimes suffering in your life may be corrective. It is the means by which God brings you back on track. But sometimes suffering, pain, affliction in your life is simply that God may show His power in you. And that's a hard one for us, but it is an important one. Second lesson I think this story teaches us is this. No one necessarily has a right to wholeness. You know, there are some branches of the Christian church that will tell you that God wants you to be whole. And all you need to do is name it and claim it. Claim that wholeness. Don't let any kind of negative thoughts invade your mind. You have a right to be made Whole. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that it's simply not borne out by Scripture. In fact, I can give you a perfect example of somebody who suffered with a physical affliction and asked the Lord three times to remove it, and the Lord refused to do it. And that was the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul was an apostle. We're not talking about some sort of little neophyte Christian here. We're talking about a giant of the faith. Now, it is true, in an ultimate sense, all of us are going to be healed if you're a Christian. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, one day, God is going to make us all whole, and every tear is going to be wiped away from our eyes. But in this life, Jesus said, you will what? Have tribulation. So we need to understand that that is simply part of it. In fact, Lazarus is this wonderful example. I've always felt that Lazarus was the most pitiful person in all Scripture. It's bad enough to die once. Lazarus must have died twice. So from this story, we learn that we do not necessarily have a right to wholeness. We also learn this. We oftentimes don't recognize what the real problem is. We tend to think that the worst thing that can happen to us is we lose our health. In fact, people will sometimes say to me, you know, if you've got your health, you have everything. If you don't have your health, you have nothing. Now, if you've ever been 
desperately ill. And I speak with authority here because I did. At one point in my life, I was desperately ill, almost died as a matter of fact, was out of work for months. And I have to admit, when you lose your health, you lose a lot. Because in case you can't tell, I'm a little bit energetic. I've got a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. I'm a driven kind of personality. I've been accused of being a workaholic, all those kinds of things. And to be laid up with the ability to do nothing is a very hard thing. That's one of the reasons I've told you before I never pray for patience because I know God's recipe for getting it. <laughs> and that is a painful thing. That is a difficult thing. I acknowledge that. But sometimes we think that the loss of health is the worst thing that can happen to us. It is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Because you live on this planet for maybe 70, 80, 90 years. But you were created for eternity. The problem, you see, is that we fail to take sin seriously. If this story of Jesus healing the paralytic teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that the real problem affecting us is sin. Now, why don't we take sin seriously? Well, there are any number of reasons. One is we have a tendency just to ignore it. Out of sight, out of mind. Another reason we don't take sin seriously and see it as the main problem is that we have a tendency to excuse it. We have a tendency to blame it on our environment or our family or our background or our upbringing. Back in the 1970s, Dr. Carl Menninger who was the founder of the famous Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, world-famous American psychiatrist, wrote a book entitled, Whatever Happened to Sin? One of the things that he noticed was that he was treating all of these patients with all of these problems, these psychological problems, and what he noticed was that they were all afflicted with a deep sense of guilt. But what they called guilt, a former generation called sin. But because guilt was not necessarily a bad thing in the 1970s, and guilt is not necessarily a bad thing today in the sense that it's not something that you have done and therefore should feel guilty about it, he said there was really no way of dealing with these people. If they understood what sin was, he could have dealt with it. They just felt bad but they didn't see themselves as having done anything bad, and as a consequence, there was simply no cure for their ailment. And that's why he wrote the book, Whatever Happened to Sin. And this is what he said. He said, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away. In fact, he says, it has almost disappeared, the word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Well, what is sin? You know, this is one of the things we were just talking about as the clergy just this past week. You talk to a lot of young people today, they don't even know what the word sin means. They know that it has negative connotations, but they don't regard themselves as sinners. So, so what does it mean to sin? Well, this is how Dr. Menninger described it. It's a classic, I would even say, a biblical definition of sin. He said, sin is a transgression of the law of God. It is disobedience of the divine will. It is moral failure. Now think about that, moral failure. 
Sin is a failure to realize in conduct and character the moral ideal, at least as fully as possible under existing circumstances. It is a failure to do as one ought to do towards one's creator and one's fellow man. Well, that's how he defines sin. And then he asks the question, whatever happened to it? Here's what he said happened to sin. He said, what became of sin? Briefly put, sin first became a crime transgression of the law of man rather than transgression of the laws of God. And then crime became symptoms. Symptoms were caused by factors thought to be external to the offender and therefore things for which he or she was not clearly responsible. So no longer do we talk about sinning, we talk about making a mistake, don't we? Well, everybody makes mistakes. Yes, that, that, that is true. If I back into your car in the parking lot today, accidentally, that's a mistake. If I just don't like you and I pull out my keys and key the side of your car, that is not a mistake. Do you see the difference? But what manager is saying is that many people don't see the difference. He wrote this little bit of satire in that book. It's a poem. I love it. Listen carefully to it. It just helps to describe what happened to sin. A little poem. It goes like this. At three I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers. And so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But now I'm happy I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. That's the world in which we're living, isn't it? At three, I had a feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. No connection, but, but now I'm happy I have learned this lesson it has taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. Well, I've got news for you. Sin does matter. And that's why Jesus Christ came into the world. He came into the world to deal with that which really afflicts us. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin, that is to say the payment, the consequence, the penalty for sin is death. And in that book, Whatever Happened to Sin, Dr. Menninger deals with just what we would call the seven deadly sins and he shows why they're deadly. He deals with the first one, pride. What is pride? It is that attitude of being puffed up, conceited, based on the fact that you have power over another individual, or you have knowledge that is superior to someone else, or you regard yourself as being more virtuous or exalted than another person. And he said the reason why pride is deadly is because it kills the one thing we human beings need. It kills relationships. If you see yourself as being better morally, intellectually, or whatever it may be than another human being, do you really think you can have a healthy relationship with that person? It will kill the relationship. The wages of sin, death. Same is true for lust. Into this we would put all of the sexual sins, and our culture, of course, is obsessed with sex. 
What does lust do? Well, the first thing lust does is it kills one's personality. We no longer regard somebody as made in the image of God. We regard them as what? A thing to be used. A thing to be enjoyed. And when it is used, to be discarded. It undermines the very thing that makes human relationships possible. Trust. Gluttony. Now, you know what gluttony is. An excessive use of food or or drink, or whatever it may be. This is actually one of the seven deadly sins that we actually get. Because we're living in a culture in which people are obsessed with staying healthy, and living longer, and not just living longer, but having a quality of life. You see, the proliferation of gymnasiums and workout facilities so that people can make sure that they're healthy. And you can read on the pack of your, your packets of food, and you can see how many grams of sugar there are, how many, you know, things. Now we have free-range chickens because we want to make sure that the chickens are healthy so that when we eat the chickens, we're healthy and, and so forth. We actually understand this. We understand that gluttony is deadly. Why? Because gluttony kills the body. We're obsessed with the body. Anger, another one of the deadly sins. Harsh words. Anger is deadly. Why? Because it kills other people. How many of you were taught this little ditty? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. How many of you were taught that? How many of you believe it? (laughs) It simply isn't true, isn't it? The reality is this. Sometimes words hurt a lot more than sticks and stones. You can recover from somebody hitting you with a stick or a stone. There are certain words that people will say to you that you will never recover from. They wound for generations. Sloth. Laziness. What does that kill? Kills off potential. It kills off opportunities. You can have an individual that has great potential, could do great things for himself, for his family, and for his culture, But because he's slothful and lazy, those opportunities are never realized. Envy. What does envy kill? Well, it kills, above all else, contentment. One of the things that was so amazing about Jesus, and one of the things that people found so intriguing about him, was that he was content. That was one of the things that people were really attracted to the early Christians about. The Apostle Paul said, I have learned the secret to being content in all circumstances. That's something that we don't have. We we live in a culture of discontent. People are not happy or satisfied or content or serene about anything. But Jesus had it. He said, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man has not even a place to lay his head. And yet Jesus had this peace which passed human understanding. And people came to Jesus, drawn to him like a moth to a flame, because whatever he had, they wanted it. But you see, Jesus envied no man. (laughs) But that's what envy does. Kills contentment and serenity. We spend the rest of our lives searching for that which is elusive. And then there's greed. What does greed do? Greed kills you. Greed is a form of suicide. Because all you want is more and more and more. 
And it doesn't matter how much you get, it will never be enough. And if your neighbor has something that you want, you're going to do everything in your power to get it. And it will kill your relationship, and it will kill you. So we have a whole culture out there that is guilty of the seven deadly sins, but they don't see them as sin. They're dying, and they don't know what to do about it because they've never really been diagnosed. We're trying to treat the symptoms, my friends. We've never diagnosed the problem. The wages of sin is death. Jesus deals with that, and that's one of the lessons that we learn here in Matthew's Gospel, that the real problem afflicting us as a culture and as individuals is sin. Jesus could heal this man of his physical problem, but in a few years, something else was going to afflict him and he was going to die. He could save him from his sins, and he would live forever in eternity. What is more important? Here's the second thing that Jesus' healing proves. It, of course, proves that he has the power to forgive sins. That's where this narrative has been moving all along. Jesus heals this man for one purpose only, to prove that he has the authority to really deal with the problem afflicting him, and that is sin. And that is why this story of the paralytic and Jesus forgiving him his sins and healing him moves immediately to the next story, the calling of Matthew. Isn't it interesting that we're told that Jesus forgives this man his sins? The disciples are wondering how he can do that. The Pharisees are accusing him of blasphemy. Jesus said, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins and restore people, I'm going to heal this man, and he does. And the very next verse says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house of Matthew, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. And the Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said to them, Those who have no need of a physician who are well, but only the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that what? Save the wretch like me. What does amazing grace save you from? Your physical afflictions? Amazing grace saves you from the thing that afflicts you and can kill not just the body, but can kill the soul. I don't think it's any mistake that you have this story, the way Matthew organizes the material of the forgiveness of the paralytic, the healing of the paralytic, and immediately the calling of Matthew. Because if ever there was an example of Jesus saving somebody who is a sinner, it was Matthew. Now, I don't know of any time in any culture where people have liked tax collectors. And we're getting close to April 15th. I'm sure you don't like them either. But Matthew in particular, as a Jew, was regarded as a particularly terrible and wicked sinner. 
Here's what um, William Barclay, who sometimes has some very helpful uh, background information. He's good on some things, not so good on other things, but he's good on this. He says, there was never a more unlikely candidate for the office of apostle than Matthew. Matthew is what the authorized version, that is the King James Version, called a publican. The publicani were tax gatherers and were so called because they dealt with public money and with public funds. The problem for the Roman government was how to devise a system whereby the taxes could be collected as efficiently and as cheaply as possible. They did so, listen to this, by auctioning the right to collect taxes in a certain area. The man who bought that right was responsible to the Roman government for an agreed sum. Anything he could raise over and above that, he was allowed to keep as his commission. Obviously, this system lent itself to grave abuses. People did not really know how much they ought to pay in the days before newspapers and radio and television, nor had they any right of appeal against the tax collector. The consequence was that many tax collectors became wealthy through illegal extortion. This system had led to so many abuses that in Palestine it had been brought to an end before the time of Jesus. But taxes still had to be paid, and there were still abuses. There were three great stated taxes. There was a ground tax by which a man had to pay one-tenth of his grain and one-fifth of his fruit and vine to the government, either in cash or in kind. There was an income tax, even in those days, which was 1% of a man's income. Boy, don't we wish we had that. There was a poll tax, which had to be paid by every male from the age of 14 to the age of 65 and by every female from the age of 12 to 65. These were statutory taxes and could not well be used by tax collectors for private profit. But, here it comes, in addition to these taxes, there were all sorts of other taxes. There was a duty of anything from 2.5% to 12.5% on all goods imported and exported. A tax had to be paid to travel on main roads, what we would call turnpikes today. So if you wonder where we get all these rules and regulations, this is ancient stuff. There was a tax that had to be paid to cross bridges, to enter market towns and harbors. There was a tax on pack animals and a tax on the wheels and axles of carts. There were purchase tax on goods bought and sold. There were certain commodities which were government monopolies. For instance, in Egypt, the trade in nitrate, beer, and papyrus was entirely in government control. Although the old method of auctioning the taxes had been stopped, all kinds of people were needed to collect these various forms of taxes. The people who collected them were drawn from the provincials themselves. Often they were volunteers. Usually in any one district, a person was responsible for one tax, and it was not difficult for such a person to line his own pockets in addition to collecting the taxes which were legally due. These tax gatherers were universally hated. They had entered the service of their country's conquerors, and they amassed their fortunes at the expense of their country's misfortunes. They were notoriously dishonest. Not only did they fleece their own people, but they also did their best to swindle the government. And they made a flourishing income by taking bribes from rich people who wished to avoid taxes which they should have paid. Every country dislikes tax officials, sometimes to the point of hatred, but the hatred of the Jews for them was doubly violent. And Jesus sees one of these fellows 
sitting there. Capernaum was a crossroads town. That's why he moved there. And there's Matthew collecting the taxes, aided. And Jesus says, hey, you, come and follow me. Matthew was hated and unacceptable for a number of reasons. First of all, he was a political collaborator. He worked, as you heard William Barclay say, for the Romans. The Jews hated the Romans. They were expecting the Messiah to drive the Romans out. They were a conquered people. They hated that. They were supposed to be the princes of the world. And so they hated him because he was Jewish, but he worked for the enemy. He was not only politically unacceptable, he was religiously unacceptable. The Jews had a rule you can find in Leviticus chapter 20 about throwing out anybody from the fellowship who prostituted him or herself to Moloch. Now, Moloch was a pagan deity, but most people by this point associated prostituting yourself to Moloch was doing whatever it took to get more money. Jesus calls this a love of mammon in the New Testament. And as a result of that, tax collectors were not even permitted to testify in Jewish court, even if they were Jewish, because they were regarded as notoriously dishonest. He was also socially unacceptable. Jews called tax collectors Am Ha'era. It means a people of the land. Loosely translated, dirty people. Because what? They dealt in filthy lucre. Jews were not even permitted to visit their homes. So if you want to imagine how Matthew was viewed by the people of his day, imagine how collaborators in occupied France were regarded by the people of their day. Women who used to, in order to get along, in order to get stockings, silk stockings and perfume and so forth, would prostitute themselves basically to the German soldiers. And when the Allies came in and liberated France, they punished these women as collaborators. And one of the things they did is they shaved their heads and paraded them through the town as those who refused to pay the price of loyalty. They were hated. They were despised. They were rejected. They were outcast. And that is exactly how Matthew was regarded, beyond the pale unacceptable to decent people. But here's the important thing, acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. Notice what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, come and follow me. And verse 9 says, and he rose and he followed him. Here is a true conversion, my friends. This is what those in heaven, the angels and the archangels and the company of heaven and all the saints who have gone before, this is what they rejoice in. They rejoice in the conversion of somebody like Matthew more than 99 righteous people who have never gone astray. And we know it was a genuine conversion. There are lots of spurious conversions, but we know this is a genuine conversion. How do we know that Matthew was truly changed? Well, we know it from a number of things. The first thing is this. He rose and immediately he followed Jesus. Now, earlier in this gospel, we encountered two would-be disciples who said they would follow Jesus, and they didn't, did they? One said, well, I need to go home and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. 
And the other one said, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said, well, have you counted the cost? And once he counted the cost, he turned back and followed no more. Matthew, we're told, immediately arose and went. Now, we're told the others had done the same thing. The other 12, remember? Two of them had left their nets. Two of them had left their fathers in the boats. They had left their livelihood. They had left their families. Matthew does the same thing. He leaves his life of sin. Remember the story of the woman caught in adultery? It was brought before Jesus and John's gospel, thrown before the Lord. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law says she deserves to be stoned. But what do you say? Thinking they were going to catch Jesus no matter how he responded. If he said, well, the law says she needs to be stoned, then what? Well, they're going to say, well, where's the grace, the mercy? On the other hand, if Jesus said, well, we're going to have grace and mercy, they would have said he's no friend of Moses. He said he came not to destroy the law but to fulfill it, but obviously he's ignoring the law. Now, you know, Jesus managed to outwit them. But what I want you to notice is Jesus' response to the woman. Once they drop their stones and they all wander away, Jesus then turns to the woman and he says what to her? He says, where are they who condemn you? That is, where are those who sit in judgment of you? And she looks up and she said, well, there's no one, Lord. He said, that's right. No one to condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't condemn her, but he acknowledges that what she was doing was sinful and she needed to leave her life. That's what we see happening here with Matthew. Jesus says, come and follow me. But to follow me means you have to turn your back on that. And we know that Matthew had a genuine conversion because he did it. Luke says he left his tax booth. That's why I said it's sometimes helpful to look at the parallel version. If you look at Luke chapter 5, verse 28, same story. Here Matthew's called Levi, but it's the same person. And as Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And here's the third reason why we know that Matthew's conversion was true. In Luke's version, Luke chapter 5, verse 29, we're told that Levi, Matthew, then brought his friends to Jesus. That's how you know a true conversion has taken place, my friends. When those three things happen in your life, you rise and you follow Jesus and in following Jesus, you leave behind your life of sin. Second thing, you are prepared to leave everything if necessary in order to follow Jesus. That is to say, you recognize that He is the treasure hidden in the field. He is the pearl of great price for which you are willing to sacrifice everything in order to gain it. And the third way you know that your conversion is real is that when you bring others to Jesus Christ, you have a desire, a longing that others may come to know what you have come to know, that there is forgiveness, there is a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. Now let me tell you, you'll never have a genuine conversion unless you recognize that your real problem is sin. Because if you think you're healthy, you don't need the doctor, Jesus says. It's when you recognize that you're sick, and not just a little sick, you are deathly ill, that you will turn to the Savior. And you'll ask Him to heal you, just as He healed that man being let down from the roof. See, Matthew and the man being let down from the roof had the same problem. 
And the problem was not one had a physical malady and one didn't. The problem was that they were both afflicted with the one disease, the one illness that has the potential to not just kill the body but to kill the soul. And that's what Jesus Christ came to save us from. If you want to love Jesus Christ, if you want to love Him more day by day, then pray this prayer and I promise you, you will. Pray that God will reveal to you your sin in all of its manifold and terrible ways. Help Him to see your sin more clearly because the more you see your sin, your wretchedness, your wickedness, that's what we say every Sunday. Well, you know, we say those words, but I wonder if we really believe it. Do you really believe you're a wretch? I mean, really? Oh, we, we sing that with gusto. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Save the wretch like me. But if I call you a wretch, you're going to take great offense. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold and wickedness. You see yourself as a wicked person? Well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not wicked. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a wretch. I mean, I make mistakes, but I don't sin. And let me tell you something. You're wasting your time coming here because you don't need a Savior. But we do, don't we? And that's what Jesus Christ came into the world to save. And the reason why Matthew is put before us here is because if God can save a Matthew... There's nobody that he can't save. And that's the hope and the glory of the gospel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it well. He said, it doesn't matter how great a sinner you are, there is still room for you. Make a person out to be an elephantine sinner. And there is still room in the ark of Christ Jesus, even for the vilest of the vile. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus Christ came into this world to heal us, to heal us from that which really afflicts us, the disease of sin. And we've all got it, Lord. Sometimes we're not even aware of it. There are illnesses that are like that, but there are illnesses that sleep within our body and then all of a sudden manifest themselves. Sin is often like that, but Lord, we look at our world around us and it's so obvious how pervasive this, this terrible disease is. Jesus Christ came into the world to be the great physician, to heal us not from our physical maladies alone, but to heal us from our spiritual malady. Grant us the grace to recognize our need and grant us the grace to come and fall at Jesus' feet, knowing that when He touches us, we will be restored. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you.